Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. Donald Trump was defeated by Joe Biden. Thank fucking... No, I am not taking a hit off of anything, although it sounds like it. I was just taking in a deep breath so that I could exhale a big sigh of relief right now, knowing that Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States and Donald Trump, whether he wants to admit it, was defeated in this election. Thank fucking Yes, on the heels of last week's special Election Day episode of the Berman Hour podcast, we have the results of said election. This past Saturday... It came down that my home state, the sometimes great state, other times terrible state of Pennsylvania, went for Joe Biden, along with it, it's 20 electoral college points, putting him over the 270 electoral college vote threshold, securing his victory and securing that he will be the 46th president of the United States, whether Donald Trump wants to admit it or not. But it appears that all these days later, there is a coup afoot between the Trump administration the spineless Republican Party, and the spineless Attorney General. So I encourage you, you know, if you have friends or family members that voted for Donald Trump, give them a call. Reach out to them. See how they're doing. Don't rub it in. That's not wise because this was way too close of an election, too close for comfort in my opinion. And although we owe Biden the congratulations, we're going to hold his feet to the fire too, and we've got a lot of work to do collectively. But reach out to these Trump supporters that you might know or that you're related to. And, you know, don't confront them. Don't gloat in their face. Just tell them that they're fucking stupid. And that they're fascists. And if they know what that means and they get upset with you, then that's your starting point. And if they get upset at you because they don't know what that means, then that's your starting point. You get what I'm saying? Let's stop equating right and left. They're not equal. And let's stop playing nice for people who clearly don't want us to exist in the manner that we exist. So do with that what you will. I'm going to stop being nice. And to that extent, I will be nice to my guest this week, who's one of my best friends, Mr. Joe McMahon from Smoker Fire. I just listened back to this interview, and you know, it sounds like a typical conversation between Jeff and Joe, something that we would have in a bar, whether we're in Berkeley or Wiesbaden. I should have said Berkeley or Berlin. That would have rolled off the tongue a little better, but <laughs> shout out to Wiesbaden, Germany. Fun fact about Joe McMahon's family, his mom and dad are very nice. I had the pleasure of meeting them in Germany a couple of years ago when they were visiting. They were instrumental in getting my wife and I VIP treatment at a resort in Jamaica on our honeymoon. Yeah. My wife and I ended up going to a resort that Joe McMahon's parents have been going to for years. We got there, and they said, oh, you're the Bermans? And we said, yeah, we're the Bermans. And they said, oh, you're friends with the McMahons? And we said, yes, we're friends with the McMahons. And they said, great, here are these VIP bracelets. Use that to go anywhere you want. To which we said, well, let's get it. Well, that's what I said. My wife said, oh, thank you. I said, let's get it. Anyway, this week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast is brought to you by Flow State Coffee from New Wave. Let me help you get 10% off your first order of this amazing and useful coffee by going to newwave.co slash Berman. That's N-O-O-W-A-V-E dot C-O slash B-E-R-M-A-N. Now here's the deal with Flow State Coffee. 
Flow state is a frame of mind. You are put into that optimal frame of mind by what is in this coffee. And here's what it is. It's coffee, it's raw cacao, and it's L-theanine, which is a tasteless and odorless amino acid that naturally reduces stress and anxiety. And when combined with the little bit of caffeine that is in this coffee, it puts your brain into that optimal performance mode where you are focused, you are attentive, and you are getting done what you need to get done without the shakes and the jitters of having too much caffeine. And let me tell you, if you are like me and you are creative, the kiss of death is distraction. And if you are like me and you like to drink a lot of coffee, but you have a caffeine sensitivity, then too much caffeine is the kiss of death. Flow State Coffee is the perfect balance for me, and I know you will love it. A number of listeners to the Berman Hour podcast have already written me and said, hey, I thought this was bullshit, but I gave it a chance. I really like it, and it's really helpful. I don't know if they're going to put that quote on their bag, you know? I'd say it's a B-plus endorsement, but hey, it worked, they liked it, and I think you'll like it too. Go to newwave.co slash Berman and get yourself some New Wave Flow State Coffee. So yes, I don't want to gloat. I do just want to say we can celebrate for a little bit, but we've got a lot of work to do on the heels of a Biden victory. But at least we're given a chance to get this work done. You know what I'm saying? So thanks for all for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Berman Hour podcast. Wherever you listen, that does not matter. What matters is that you give it a five-star rating, you write a nice review, and you subscribe. That is huge, nay, huge help to us here at the pod and by us i mean me myself and i the unholy trinity of berman so again enjoy my podcast interview with my good friend joe mcmahon let's get it been kind of watching America from the outside uh, it's just like a face it's like a it's just a constant face palm like every day <laughs> you know what I mean it's hard to yeah it's hard to watch um, it's not completely surprising but yet you're still kind of surprised every day at the level of stupidity and just picking sides on something that is is to me so obvious and seeing it from an outside perspective to me it's just sort of like a new low it really is it's really just saying like i really don't give a fuck about anybody except myself and and my beliefs and people I, are literally dying it you know daily because of people's inability to sort of um compromise be compassionate and, and be compassionate yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you think about me in the same way that I'm about to explain how I think about you, but since we've known each other, there's just been kind of these these mile markers, so to speak, of things that have happened in the world or, or whatever, you know, in the course of our friendship. And, and mm-hmm. I say that because for anybody that's toured in Europe, like the one constant thing that comes up is Europeans love to come up to you and it's like they want to sit down with you and have a glass of wine or a beer, and they they really want to converse with you, and and they want yeah. to learn about Americans, and they want to learn about kind of the idiosyncrasies of what makes America unique in, in yes. a lot, and especially in a lot of negative ways. So the mm-hmm. tour that I did with you in Europe was the last time that I went to Europe, where it was like, oh, no one's asking me about Bush, 
like it's all good like it's like things have kind of like weathered away and then when I went back the next year everybody was asking me about Trump and that was just when the primary had had begun and then you did a tour with us in the states the week after the 2016 election yes which was uh <laughs> like yeah. the most despondent tour we could have ever done um now that we're almost on the other side of this and hopefully going to be on the outside of this this super dark time, um, you've spent the majority of this time or the entirety of this time ab- abroad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you want to come back? <laughs> to America? Yeah. Oh, God. People ask me that all the time. People <laughs> ask me if I miss it and things like that. You know, I'll, just, I'll give you a straight answer. No, I, I don't. Um, there are people... And some things that I miss. Do I miss living there? No, I do not. Yeah. Um, well, let's go back. So okay. you, you, you're synonymous because of Smoker Fire with Richmond, Virginia, with RVA. But I know that sure. that's not where you're from. So you're from Western Massachusetts. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Yeah. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Richmond, Massachusetts, actually. Uh, no shit. Yeah, Richmond MA to Richmond VA. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. I grew up in, in Western Massachusetts, uh, in Richmond, small town, very small town. And then I moved to Boston, uh, when I was like 17 and then yeah, where'd, you, where'd you go? <clears throat> I went to Boston university okay. from uh, 97 to 2001. I graduated. And then, what was um, your, uh, what was your degree? I was in the, I was in the school of fine arts and I was doing, uh, the first two years was core. It was illustration, painting, sculpting uh graphic design you name it like everything um but also at that school you took um you weren't just in um, school of fine arts i was also taking uh, philosophy and psychology classes and japanese poetry and other weird stuff that uh whatever i thought sounded cool um and then my major ended up being um graphic design minor in sculpture Uh, yeah i was there until 2001 and then you know of course made the the decision that made my parents extremely happy and said, uh, I'm going to go play music now instead of using my degree. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll, we'll get there. Were, were you always living in Alston the entire time that you were in Boston? No, when I first, a bit? when I first, Oh God, I think in Boston, I think I lived in 16 different places while I lived there. Jeez. I lived in the, the first place I lived, it was Kenmore square right near, um, across from the, the old rat, you know, the rat, it was an old, yeah, I remember where that was. I was right across the street from there. Um, near Fenway Park. And then uh, my first apartment was in Brighton, which, which is just like, um, it's almost, it's like before you get to Alston, if you're going up Com Ave. Yeah. Um, and then I mostly, <clears throat> I mostly lived in Alston the rest of the time. The, st- the student ghetto, yeah. <laughs> the student ghetto. That's what they call it. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's apropos for that, for, for it sure. It is. For sure, yeah. You know, at at what point did you do you remember like at a certain age where you really fell in love with music? You know, I was always, I came from a sports family. My father was a professional baseball player. My grandfather was a professional baseball player. My uncles were. Um, oh, really? I didn't know with, that. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Oh my gosh! My grandfather was actually my dad in touch. My dad. Million questions. I don't think my mom allows my father to talk about baseball anymore, but. uh did you say what organization they were a part of? Uh, my grandfather was actually drafted to the Cincinnati Reds, and he actually was the highest paid draft at the time uh, ever in history. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
My dad used to play for the uh, AAA in Tacoma for the Twins. He was drafted drafted with the same year as uh, uh, Dave Winfield, I think it was. There was a bunch of great guys he played with. Um, he played for a Red Sox farm team. Um, my dad, you know, it's weird. My dad, he wasn't really allowed to talk about baseball. Or maybe, or maybe he just didn't want to talk to about talk about baseball yeah. very much growing up because, you know, he was – people would come up to me and say, uh, say, you know, your father was the, the, the best shortstop I've ever seen in my life. And he never really talked about it, but he would hit ground balls at our faces every day. We were, there was a lot of pressure to play baseball growing up. Yeah. Cause uh, you have siblings, right? It was, yeah. Two older brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Did they take to sports? <clears throat> we were all playing baseball. I mean, baseball yeah. was just, um, uh, expected, I guess, you know? Yeah. But it, for me, it, it honestly, it wasn't really fun. It was just, it was so competitive. It was not a game in our, in our house. It was, um, it was very intense. And I remember, you know, I was growing up playing uh, the saxophone and playing jazz and I was in love with music. And, you know, I didn't really think about baseball in my spare time. I just listened to records. Yeah. Um, when you were a kid on the saxophone, were you performing? In, in uh, some respect, in an ensemble or something? I was, yeah. I grew up um, playing uh, in jazz bands and things like that and, and marching band. Um, so I learned a lot of music, uh, about music from playing jazz. And then, you know, I was 15 and I, uh, I heard Nirvana and I wanted a guitar and that was it. <laughs> and uh, Nirvana seems to be a constant theme here on the Berman Hour, where is it? A lot of yeah, people, well, I, which I'm surprised age, to yeah. say. Yeah, I don't know. Because you know me, I'm, I'm a hair metal guy. So I was into the. I was into that nasty rock and roll. Well, I was too. I mean, you know, Def, Le- Def Leppard was my, my first like favorite band. And then, and then I heard yeah. Motley Crue and then Motley, my uncle gave me Motley Crue, uh, theater of pain. And, and I loved Motley Crue. My mom took away my Dr. Feel Good tape. That was actually the first time I was on stage. There was a lip syncing contest in my school when I was in <laughs> fifth grade and everyone was what doing. What song like, did you do? Well, <clears throat> everyone was doing like Janet Jackson black hat yeah. or whatever was cool then and like folk songs and me and my buddies we did dr feelgood the song dr feelgood oh, yeah. and we came out and like ripped pants and like you know fingerless <laughs> gloves and uh i was vince neal you know and um my my mom t- took the tape away when i got home and she read the lyrics and she was like this is about the devil and cocaine and i was like what's cocaine Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I told my mom that years later, I was like, you took so many things away from me. Like, yeah, were yeah. just over my head, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I had no idea what Dr. Feelgood was. I just thought it was a cool song. Yeah, it's like, I know you want to think that because I'm your little boy that I'm really intelligent, but I assure you I'm not. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I don't understand these references. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was into that stuff too, but then I, when I heard Nirvana, that yeah, I think there's this... Um, that's that's sort of changed it for a lot of a lot of kids my age that had sort of like uh i don't know for me i was like yeah this is how i feel (laughs) it's a graduation of sorts out of the imposter syndrome into the i can do this syndrome yeah and more like this is how i feel i feel pissed off i feel pretty unhappy about a lot of things and that's what you heard when you listened to that that record you know it was like yeah yeah, i feel way more like this than cherry pie you know by warrant (laughs) well it depends if i've had dessert yet today (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true that's true janie lane knows what's up yeah that's do you do you remember kind of the gateway into the world of punk rock and hardcore or or was that nirvana for you were they that gateway for you for me that was just something you know kind of it was a gateway in a sense of it was something that i that i just had never heard anything like it before 
um, you know, like I said, I grew up in a really small town. So for me, music was tape world at the mall or what was on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's one, it's, it's a reason I, I've never really, um, kind of come down on people who I feel like kind of live in a bubble musically, because honestly, it's just not all out there and accessible to you. And usually us, like the, the folks that get into like punk rock and stuff, we have that person who kind of came along and gave it to us. For us, it was like, um, me and two of my best friends, one of my best friends, Pete, his, his uncle lived in Boston and he worked with the Mighty Mighty Bostones and he gave Pete a tape and it was Operation Ivy and we listened to it and we were like, holy shit. Yeah. What is this? You know? And then when you, when you heard something like that, you just went on the hunt for like, okay, what else is out there? And then it was Fugazi, you know, and anything else you could get your hands on. And that was, you know, that was the, um, that was the Nirvana was definitely the bridge to that kind of music, that hard stuff. Um, but yeah, once I heard some punk rock bands, I was like, yeah, this is it. That's it. Yeah. Don't you miss those days of the, of the search? Of the yeah, day? for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, honestly, uh, that was kind of, that's kind of the cool part of coming over to Europe was, you know, Americans don't really listen to foreign bands that much, um, to be honest, or bands that are in different languages that aren't in English, whereas other countries, they really do. They list, you know, going, uh, when we went to Japan and, and most people there didn't speak English, but they, they know all the worst of your songs. Yes. Americans don't do that. Americans don't, you know, listen to a French punk rock band and learn the, the song, the, the lyrics, you know? Um, so it was kind of cool. It was like a, a new hunt for me, you know, being 36 years old, uh, or 33 or however old I was like to kind of find that, like, uh, that search again, that hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And so get into foreign bands. At what point did you put together what we knew as, as Jericho, which became Jericho RVA? Um, because you were, you started the band when you were still in Boston, right? Yeah, it was my freshman year of college, 1997. Okay. I wanted to get out of my small town and move to the city and play music. And I was so eager to do that. My first day of class, um, my first day of class in Boston University, so it was September of, two, of 1997, I was walking into class. There was a kid in front of me, and he had a, backpack, uh, a patch on his backpack that said Avail. And I poked him on the shoulder, and I said, hey, I play bass. Uh, do you play guitar? And he just looked at me, and he was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, him and I became friends and he was in a band from New Hampshire called Born Ugly. Um, and they were good. They were a really good punk band, um, especially for a high school punk band, you know, and they had split up because their singer Andy was moving out to San Francisco, I think to play drums for screw 32 or something mm -hmm. like that. And so, um, he was like, Hey, you know, uh, my old band, the rest of the guys are, are, um, we're starting a new band. And, uh, do you want to try out to play bass? And I was like, yeah, for sure. So I went up to New Hampshire on the weekend and I remember the audition was like in, um, the loft of a farmhouse. It was like, <laughs> it's like a <laughs> barn and I like climb up this ladder with my bass and we, uh, just kind of jammed and, um, they called me the next day and they were like, yeah, you can play bass, but the guy that was going to sing doesn't want to do it. So you can play bass and you can sing or you, or that's kind of like, that's the deal. And I was like, well, I don't know how to sing. And they said, well, that's the deal. And I was like, okay, I'll sing. <laughs> but I, I couldn't sing. So yeah, that's when it started in 97. Wow. How did you take to singing or how did you not take to singing? Um, you know, the thing about it was 
I liked writing. I knew I could write, you know, I'd always liked to write. I always did a lot of writing. So to me, I never tried to sing because I really couldn't. But I think like when I heard bands like Hot Water Music and some hardcore bands, um, I remember hearing a veil. I remember reading their lyrics and thinking, I don't know how to sing, but I can write. Because the first time I heard Hot Water Music, I'd never heard anything like that. It was just a bunch of guys screaming. And I didn't know how to react to it. And then I listened to it again and I read the lyrics and I said, this is the best band I've ever heard in my life. You know, So my approach to it was, uh, it doesn't matter how you sing, it's what you're saying. Sure. And I think, you know, along with that, it's just, if you do it for, <laughs> I tell everyone, you, anyone can sing. Because I actually found a, a tape from 1997 of our second show. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard to listen to. But to me, it's also, anyone can do it if you do it long enough. Um, it's an instrument. You can learn it. Because if, if I can sing, literally anyone can sing. I really, At what point did you guys make it down to Richmond then? Richmond was 2000, end of 2002, I think. We okay. hit it really hard. You know, the first couple of years, we would not turn down one show. We, we played everywhere, anywhere. We, you know what happened? We ended up, we played a show with Strike Anywhere in Boston in 2001. And those guys stayed with us. And um, Thomas, the singer, you know, in the morning we were having tea and uh, he's, he kind of like looked at our apartment. We were, you know, we were in Alston, in this shithole. And it was a three bedroom apartment and we had seven people living there. There was two guys sleeping in the hallway on a mattress. And you were still paying an, an absorbent amount, I'm sure, because it was... Because it's That's Boston, it yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we were still still all paying at least five hundred dollars a month back then, in and there were seven of us in a three bedroom apartment. And uh, he just he just said, "How many people live here?" And I told him seven, and he was like, "Wow!" And he was like, "And how much do you pay?" And I told him, and he just like his jaw dropped, and he was like, "What are you doing?" And I said, well, <laughs> you know, that's good question, you know. Thomas. Good question. And he said, "Dude, you guys got to move down to Richmond, seriously." And you know, Richmond to us was where all the great bands were from, you know, that was like punk rock heaven, you know, including strike anywhere and avail and all those bands. And so I think shortly after that, we, we booked our first tour. We all saved up a bunch of money and we were supposed to go to Florida and back. And it was like two weeks and our, uh, our van died pretty, I think pretty close to where you live somewhere in Pennsylvania, <laughs> about 12 hours from Boston, our engine seized on like the third or fourth day. And we all pretty much had a nervous breakdown. And uh, we got back and I was like, I'm going to Richmond. Who's coming with me? And uh, almost everyone did. Everyone's like, yeah, let's go. Wow. Yeah. That's something, man. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. So Thomas, thank you. Well, Thomas and, 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 uh, and actually Tim from Avail, we met him. A bunch of us from Boston went down to, do you remember Crazy Fest in Louisville? Yeah, of course. We went down to, uh, we, like seven of us like went down to, to Louisville for Crazy Fest one year. It was a crazy lineup. And um, we're sitting in our hotel room and we're drinking PBRs and we're, and one of the guys looks outside and he goes, he like freezes up and he's like, that's Tim Barry. And everyone from Avail and everyone looks out the window and like everyone in the room has Avail tattoos already. And uh, Tim looks in the window and sees like these dudes staring out at him and he just opens the door and he walks in and he's like, oh, y'all got PBR in a bottle? Shit. <laughs> and he just walks in and we're all just like, what the fuck? And uh, we're like, yeah, man, they're in the tub. And we had filled the tub with ice and put like a couple cases of PBR in there. And he just sits down and he just starts talking to us. And we're all just yeah. like, this is insane, you know? It's worth and, noting too, just Avail at that point in the in the mid 90s to 
pretty much until Front Porch Stories, that cycle was done. I mean, yeah. they were such a significant band. They were gods and, to us, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and there was... I, it's, I, I have trouble to think... You know, in the way that they would sing in an endearing way about Richmond, it, it, it didn't come across as, as cheesy or, or no. cliche as Agnostic Front singing about the Lower East Side, which I also... Right. If they're doing it, I'm there for it. I'm I'm walking on heads because it's it's AF. But <laughs> right. for the veil, it's a little bit more. I don't know. It's a little bit more poetic and a little bit more heartfelt. It is because they mean it. More, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that was like that was a, I assume was part of the selling point of of Richmond, right? I mean, to, yeah. To us, it, it had this like authenticity that like um, when I say they mean it, I mean they lived it. You know, like, yeah. um, that, that to us was the difference. It wasn't about what you were wearing. It wasn't about who you knew. It was about like putting your money where your mouth is. And like, um, to us, that was just such a different culture being, being from Boston, you know, where, uh, I don't know, it was just so different. And we thought they were so real and so good at what they did. And so, um, yeah, that was huge. That was huge. And then, and then meeting those people who were your heroes and then being, being the, the most, you know, friendly, amazing, like they just look at you as equals and that's crazy. You know? They've never been that much older, but they've always kind of been the elder statesmen. Like that's the thing about it yes. though, is that they were, they were without being professorial, they were professors of, of how to live on the road, of how they to were. take care thing, of yourself as a band. Absolutely. And yeah. the funny thing is, is that we ended up in Europe and there, you know, there is a, an avail documentary that that's been in the works now for a long time. Um, but there's a trailer for it online you can see. And, yeah, yeah, I remember. You yeah. were all bass players in it. Yeah. yeah, Ken is talking about that. Like we were in Europe on our first European tour in 2005, uh, deconstruction tour. And like there, there's this time when we were backstage with all, you know, 10 bands. And and somebody said, you know, Avail, Strike Anywhere was there. They said, Avail taught us how to be a band. And Boy Sets Fire was like, Avail taught us how to be a band. And we were like, Avail taught us. Like everyone in the room was like, Avail taught us how to be a band, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, before true. we go any further, I feel like yeah. I'm contractually obligated to say something nice about Jeff Rowe. But, <laughs> but nothing comes to mind at the moment. I can't think um, of anything. So I'll just say, uh, what I got you got to give it to your mama. Because <laughs> I know that'll make him jump out of his chair. But um, I mean, he was kind of one of those pivotal characters. He, he was never in your band, right? But he was kind no. of part of that general collective that went to richmond with y'all right he was you know jeff Rowe was you know him and and his band back in the day boxing water has such a huge like i don't i really don't know what would have happened to jericho if we didn't meet uh, jeff Rowe and and the boxing water guys because we had this show in new hampshire and we were you know this is early this is i would like think it's 98 i think we'd been a band for only a year or so or something like that um but we kind of had our first um, record written at the time. And we played this show and they just came up to us and Jeff was like, you guys have to come play Gloucester. You have to come play Gloucester. And yeah. They were from north of Boston, this kind of really tough town, Gloucester, Massachusetts. And there was this place there called the Art Space. And we went there and played a show. And the funny thing is, is we showed up and the guy there, the guy running the show goes, who are you guys? And we're like loading in our gear and we're like, Jeff Rose said, we're playing tonight. He goes, you guys aren't playing tonight. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. 
And because Jeff just the week before was like, be here next Saturday. You guys are on the bill. And we were like, OK. And we showed up and the guy was like, you guys aren't playing. Wait, who are you? And Jeff just walks up. He's like, no, they're playing. <laughs> and we played. <laughs> and, you know, this place, it just went crazy. And it was the first time it, the kids were, you know, like circle pits and like, you know, crowd surfing. And we were sitting there playing like, what in the hell is happening? You know? And so Jeff was like, okay, next weekend you guys are playing the Haverhill. You know, this other small town. Yeah. We show up there. The promoter's like, who the fuck are you guys? And <laughs> you're not playing. And Jeff's like, nope, they're playing. And we played again. And the same thing happened. And so we kind of teamed up with those guys. Yeah. And when we moved to down to Richmond, yeah, Jeff came with us. Yeah. I, I have a <clears> memory. <throat> so, yeah, there's Jeff. You can send the check in the mail to uh, <laughs> Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in Munster, Germany. That's, that's, that's what you got. You got to give it away, give it away, give it away now, my, <laughs> my chili pepper friend. Um, I seem to remember, there's no seeming about it. I remember Dave Hawes had a band called The Curse. Yes. And they, <clears throat> were, they, were, they were good. You know, it wasn't, whatever. It was really hardcore. But they were, they were always so tense with each other. Every time my old band, The Boils, played with them, it was like, these guys fucking hate each other. Why are they in a band? And then... <laughs> I saw a veil and the casualties and the curse on tour at some point. It might've been at the nine 30 club. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the uh, homecoming show, which was not in Richmond, but was in Virginia beach. And there was no curse and y'all were there. Um, mm-hmm. Was that, was that the, the break? Like <clears throat> essentially the curse broke up on tour and they needed another band for the package. And you guys got the call. That was when I think, yeah, the curse broke up somewhere around Philly or, or DC, something like that. Because, um, I think those guys were from there. I know Davis from Philly. Uh, and I think they just were done. They broke up. And uh, Tim called us and he said, hey, you know, we got a couple weeks left of this U.S. tour. The opening band just broke up. Do you guys want to? And he was like, they were kind of laughing. They were like, do you guys want to come meet us in, in uh, tomorrow, day after tomorrow, uh, and finish the tour? Uh, and we said, yeah, we'll be there. Yeah. And they're they were like, are you are you kidding? And we're like, no, we'll be there. And we all of us we uh, all four of us quit our jobs and uh, oh my goodness and drove there and, and did the the last couple of weeks of the tour. Can you speak a little bit to the name change that you had to go through, and and just not so much the you know the the story has been well kind of well documented, but mm-hmm. psychologically what you went through to change your name from Jericho RVA because it was Jericho and then Jericho RVA to what became smoke or fire? I mean, did it feel like a, a pain in the ass at the time or was it just, you guys had momentum and you had your eye on the prize. So it, it, it didn't slow you down. Like was, was it detrimental to, you know, kind of your endurance at that point or, or were you able to take it in stride and keep going? I don't think it was really an issue for us. I mean, to me, like I was pretty happy about it because it was, it was called, we were called Jericho when I joined the band and I was never crazy about the name because we would have a lot of people assume or ask us if we were a Christian rock band, which would just make my stomach turn. Um, it's so funny you say that. I've never experienced that in my entire life. What? Divide, oh, with Divided Heaven? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you haven't. It never, never happens. Hey, no. get that, Jeff, get that Christian rock money. Just say yes. Just say yes, oh, I You am. sound like my dad. You sound like my dad. <laughs> Jesus. No, no. Yeah, that, there was two things. One, I was never really super attached to the name, I guess. Uh, and the second thing was, you know, we really weren't that well known. We, we had 
done a lot of tours and we Jericho we were very popular I think in New England but like in the south we were just really starting to play out more yeah in the midwest we went out to California you know but we still were you know small potatoes we, you know we were getting ceased and desist from this uh, band Jericho a Christian rock band and so um it was fine for us to tweak it and be Jericho RBA and whatever um but when we got signed to fat they were like this is a legal issue you know those guys actually have money um, yeah, we, we don't. We can't really sue us for anything. So, the record was going to press, and, and Fat said, "Listen, you got to change the name. You guys got like three days." Um, so, Jesus. so for me, I thought it was a nice, fresh start to have a to kind of pick a new name. But it was it was very quick that we had to do it. And That's we amazing. We were, but it must have been it. nice and comforting to have the Fat Machine behind you. Of course, yeah. That, like, of course, you know, yeah. You're, you're not having to do it in the middle of a tour, in the middle of you know whatever. I mean, the the minute that Fat announced that we got signed to them, we had ninety nine point nine nine percent more fans than we've ever had. So it didn't really sure. matter what we were called before. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, because you guys really grew into being a Fat Records band at a time where it seems as if I hate to use the term the scene because that's it's just a turd word, but like <laughs> you, there was there was a hunger for a new generation of mm-hmm. and. I, th- I think you guys and, and the Larry Arms really exemplified that best. Once you were kind of in that that world and the sinking ship is getting ready to come out, which is going to be your your third record, but your second under Smoke or Fire and your second with Fat, were things kind of operating how you felt they should have at the time, or was it still kind of a struggle? Like had had moving to Richmond paid off, where things kind of eased up and you were able to have a better a better balance? Like, could could you talk a little bit to that era of the band? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like what what Thomas from Strike Anywhere and Tim were talking about, moving down to Richmond, it, it allowed I mean, us to— And it probably to, saved your band, right? It did. It allowed us to be a band. I mean, working—you know, if you're working, living in Boston, paying that much for rent, and you're working three jobs, and you can't tour, and you can barely practice, how can you be a band, you know? Like, how can you mm-hmm. hit the road? How can you do it? And Richmond, you know, we moved down there. We bought—we didn't buy. We, we rented out—it was a seven-bedroom house. It was like a mansion— you know, and I think I paid a hundred dollars rent a month when I lived there and I was bartending and I was, you know, I was making more than that a night. Um, we had, we practiced in, um, our drummer's bedroom. We had a practice space in there. So we were practicing at the house every day. We were writing every day. We lived together. Um, we could take time off and hit the road and tour. Um, so yeah, I mean, that changed everything for us. We could actually do what well, we could be the version of our band that we wanted to, to to be none of that would have happened if we stayed in boston there's no way yeah by the time the speakeasy came out which i believe was 2010 there was a rash of individuals some of whom may be hosting this podcast at the moment who looked at this <laughs> this like landscape of of dudes with acoustic guitars and was like oh i could do that i'm gonna start doing that. <laughs> did you warm up to that idea initially or was it gradual doing the solo thing yeah because that, the reason i i, I kind of pinpoint and and put the speakeasy as a mile marker for that is because that's the record where i feel like your songwriting took a little bit more of a personalized turn mm-hmm. where it didn't um albeit great it's it it felt different than the previous couple of records. It felt a little bit more crafted as if you were honing in on what you do as Joe. It really was never something that I really planned on doing. It was something that, you know, we used to have a rule in the band that we, we don't cancel shows unless you physically cannot get there. 
mm-hmm. under any circumstances. Uh, and we had a, a situation in the band. We had some shows booked, and I just said, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cancel. I, it's embarrassing. It's you just don't, you don't cancel." So I just showed up with an acoustic guitar uh, and just started playing by myself. And that's really how it started. I never planned on being a solo artist ever. You know, in 2010, like I had a lot of uh, things happen in my life that I always felt like it's my responsibility to 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 um, represent the whole band, not just my own thoughts. You know, I wouldn't sure. say this isn't just about me. This is about four of us. Um, not that we always agree on everything, but th- there's something. There's things we do agree on, and there's. I don't want to get up there and sing a really extremely personal song about something that happened in my life that these guys has nothing to do with them, and and that's when. I sort of said, you know, this is something different. This is something I, I want to do on my own because, you know, I just didn't. It didn't seem uh, appropriate for Smoke or Fire, honestly, sure. to, to 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 sing about these things. So um, that's when I really thought maybe I'll do some stuff on my own, you know. Yeah, and it it, it kind of took you a few years. I mean, Another Life came out in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. Yeah. By the time you and I had met and, and we toured together in Europe, which was the summer of 2014, mm-hmm. you had all those songs, seemingly most of them. And, and yeah. I heard them every yeah. day and, and they're great songs. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. There was a little bit of w- what I would call kind of a detour, I guess, because from when you were, you know, when Smoker Fire was kind of winding down. You weren't quick to jump into the the solo world, but you were doing a lot of songs and, and a lot of content and a, a decent amount of touring with Billy the Kid, right? Mm-hmm. Because it seemed like instead of what's what should have been the time where you would be kind of setting the stage, figuratively speaking, for you to have your first proper Joe McMahon release, right? You know, you were you were working with Billy on on this stuff and kind of doing the duo thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for dirt or any of you know, that shit, but like, are there, are there lessons from your time in, in that kind of like holding pattern that, that you can pull from now as an established artist who's on the other side of it? For someone that's, that's looking to, to do solo stuff or for yeah, just in yeah, general? Like, well, well, both. I mean, I, I know the, I, I'm sure you could, you know, regale me with personal stuff that I'm not trying to dig out of you on a podcast, on a public forum, but like. You know, I know that that period of time for you was was kind of turbulent. It's I know for a fact the seeds for so many of your great songs right. came from that time. You know, right, so right, right. as as your friend, I, I'm I enjoyed hearing about that. But as a fan of your music, I'm it makes me want to dig into that kind of period of your life a little bit more. I mean, I think it doesn't it doesn't bother me to dig into stuff. I think that um, it's one thing like as a writer that, um, as you know, like we're lucky in a sense that we can take anything negative and create something out of it. You know, I think a lot of people, when shit happens that, that then they just have shit or it's broken or it's, and it's over and it's ended. And I've always, um, looked at music and writing as a way to turn a negative into a positive, to find a lesson in something. So, you know, when you're going through something terrible or multiple terrible things, I mean, for someone that wants to write and someone wants to go down that path, don't be afraid of that, that shit. And don't be afraid to talk about it and don't be afraid to write about it. Um, mm-hmm. Just find the way that you can do it in, in the manner that you want. I can promise you, Jeff, that a lot of the songs that you like and that you heard 
had very different original versions of them. But that's what we call growth is, is learning that uh, maybe that's not what I want to say in this song. Maybe that would be a bit offensive. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think people go on that path. Don't be afraid to turn something horrible into something positive and use it as an advantage and something that also other people can I mean, to be honest with you, Jeff, I thought people were going to absolutely crucify me with another life. I absolutely thought people were going to say, what the fuck is this? You know, even by that point, when I put it out, when I put out the record, I thought it was going to be a complete backlash because it was so different than the punk rock stuff and the smoke or fire stuff. I mean, and it's not even just an acoustic record. I think that would have been fine because I did an acoustic split with Brendan from the Lawrence Arms and everyone's like, that's great. But the fact that it was like kind of like a rock record, um, full band like that. You know, I thought, yeah, this is not going to probably go over well, but I just didn't care because that's the way I heard the record and that's what I wanted to do. And I'm stubborn like that. And so to have the reaction that that record got was shocking, but like really, really cool. Really, really surprising. Was the final result of Another Life what you had always envisioned it being or or was it kind of crafted by Tim's production and, and time? It came out... Um, yeah, it came out honestly like better than how I expected it to. But it, it was what it was what I wanted to do. But but it was only when I started working with Tim that I was like, this is actually going to happen, because right. Tim and I just had this way of working together where we just were on the same page, and and also he just knew how to do things in the studio that you know I I could never be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have the old demos that I was doing in my kitchen in Richmond when I started writing that record in 2011 and, you know, just, just messing around on GarageBand. Um, and a lot of the songs are very similar, but they're just nowhere near what I was able to do in the room with Tim. And I mean, you know, I can honestly say I, I would not want to do another solo record without Tim. He's just brilliant. You know, you took a plunge that a lot of people, myself included, we like to talk a big game about doing, but like we would never actually do it. You know, when you're in a band and you tour in the States, it fucking sucks. It's yeah. just, you get treated like shit. And then the few yeah. days that you like actually get treated well, like you're immediately brought back to reality the next day because it's something else, you know, somebody else is shitting on you. Yeah, of course. In Europe, people respect the craft they respect the fact that you're traveling they want to be helpful they want to yep. be kind yeah and so it's it's a common thing for somebody to go to, to europe and tour once and they're like oh yeah i could see myself moving there <laughs> i could do it but you actually did it yeah you know? I did. and yeah. and that was part of the the great trek when you and i did that tour together is that we were kind of going around central italy trying to find you know family documentation of of some of your ancestors and stuff right. which is yeah. still one of the most uh kind of you know rewarding things that i had ever been a part of on the road can yeah. you talk a little bit to you know what led you to actually following through with what for most people is just you know an empty statement it really started the first time i was in europe when we came over in 2005 we'd gotten signed to fat and there was the deconstruction tour, which was like the, the European warp tour. It's this huge, yeah. huge traveling circus of like 15 bands or something. And Fat called us and said, you guys, there was a band called Pepper. And they, I think they had a hit song in America. And they were like, okay, we're going to America. Uh, and we and Fat called us and said, you're on the tour. You le- you're leaving in like eight days or something. So we had to go to like DC and get passports and all this stuff. We'd never been over to Europe. And I just remember like the first day being in you know, somewhere in Southern Germany, we had a day off 
And then the first show was like in this airport hangar or something huge. But we were walking around this little village in Germany. And I think it was a Sunday. And everything was closed. And we just wanted beer. You know, we just were looking for beer. Mm-hmm. And we walked by. And the only thing that was this, there was like this little butcher shop that was open. And we walked in. And I just said, like, beer? Question mark. And the guy was like, beer. And I was like, beer. And he kind of did like the fingers, like how many? And I did like 10 with all my fingers. And he just walked into this other room and he opened the door and I could see like it was his living room and there was a refrigerator there. Like he lived there too. And he just brought 10 beers out from his fridge and put it, put them up there. And then I kind of did like the how much and he just did 10, you know, with his fingers and I gave him 10 euro. And I left and I was like, this place is amazing, you know? <laughs> and not, not because of the beer, but just... It was like that every day, everywhere we went, people were so cool. And so it was, everything was very like simple to me. Like, you know, I hadn't seen a television in a week and I didn't even think about it. The food was better. Everything was just, I don't know. There was this thing about it where I felt comfortable and not stressed out. You know what I mean? And I remember like being like, this is like where I I feel like this is where I belong, you know? And, and. I was at a point after 2010 where I'd had a lot of loss and a lot of shit in my life. And the only thing that really got me through it was my brother, uh, Tom, saying to me one day, he said, you know, you think you have nothing, but you can wake up every day and do anything you want with that day. Anything you want. And that kind of zapped me back to life. And I said, okay, from now on, I'm going to do, I'm going to live the life I want to live. I'm going to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. And um, wherever it takes me, that's where it takes me. And so, um, yeah, that's where it took me. It took me to Europe. And it's crazy because I remember coming back after like a, a long time. I'd stayed away from after I moved to Germany. I, I did a lot of touring here for, for uh, the first three years. And I remember going back to America to see my folks. And I remember flying. I think I flew into the – I had a layover, I think, in Philadelphia or something in the airport. And I remember going to the bar because I wanted to get a Coors Light to try and remember what it tasted like. And uh, I walked into the bar and there was like 30 televisions playing commercials. And I just remember feeling like, oh, I remember this weight. I remember this crushing weight of kind of like feeling like you're always being screamed at in some way, whether it's a billboard or a commercial or somebody like, you know what I mean? And I think that's that goes back to like what I felt originally in Europe was like this kind of you're sort of treated like an adult and you've got a lot of freedom and you don't have a lot of shit screaming at you all the time. And that's, I think that's, that's the, that's what, that's, that's the place I want to live. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you hear you say that when I think of when I lived there, I think because I didn't have a handle on the language, my DNA went into some sort of kind of fight or flight mode. <laughs> right. And so I was able to tune out a lot of that cacophony mm-hmm. and a lot of that static. For me over here, it really just, it, it gave me a lot of new energy and a lot of new excitement about what I was doing um, and where I was going. And, sure. you know, I spent a good 15 years traveling all 50 states in America and, and spending a lot of time over there. And I think at a certain point I might've been like, I don't know about this. <laughs> I don't know. It was tough. I went, I went back to the U S and did a tour with Nothington. We did a, a, a tour and uh, across Boston to the, to Chicago and and on one hand, like a lot of the old venues that it, that I liked were, weren't there anymore that I grew up playing. But I just remembered, you know, go, kind of going backwards to this, like, God, nobody gives a fuck, you know? 
Um, yeah, the apathy is exhaustive here. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, and it's so pervasive. Yeah. Uh, and I'd way rather concentrate. Like, I always thought, like, with Smoke or Fire, you know, you could call us a social or a political band or a punk band or whatever we were. To me, it was always just more about a discussion. And in America, it's just a big fight. It's just a big argument. And it, Yeah. Has, has fatherhood kind of changed your outlook on, on writing songs? Absolutely. I mean, almost every song that I've written in the last six months is about poop or pee. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I was thinking the other day about writing a, a kid's record. My son would get like a brand new song every day, and some of them are pretty yeah. good. I think it's, it's, a, it's interesting. I mean, it's such a weird time to become a father. And there you have it, my conversation with my good friend Joe McMahon. Be sure to check out his records, both his solo records and, of course, the Smoker Fire records. Thanks again to everyone who has subscribed, rated, and reviewed the Berman Hour podcast. Do me a favor. Put a post up about it on whatever social media platform you like, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever it is. It's all very helpful to have this podcast be spread by word of mouth. And last but not least, go to newwave.co slash Berman and get 10% off your first order of Flow State Coffee. All right, we'll see you next week. Until then, let's get